Welcome to the Beyond the Diagnosis podcast with me, Dr. Kylie. Today, we're going to dive into all things hormones. First, I'm going to answer your questions. If you haven't joined us on Facebook, where I get these questions from, come join us. Dr. Kylie Burton is the page. There is a group called the Dream Tribe. That tribe will also be providing us questions in which I will answer today. So definitely come join us. Come join the conversation over on Facebook. Now, I will be answering the questions first. Then we're going to dive into three different categories when it comes to hormones. The first category of hormones is hormones that we don't really think about. These hormones that are keeping us fat. Second, alternatives to hormone replacement therapy. I'm typically not a fan of HRT or bioidentical hormones because there's usually an underlying problem that goes missing. What are some alternatives to that specifically? And last but not least, how to improve your libido during menopause. If you're here watching live on Facebook, give me a shout out. Let me know you're live. Let me know your key takeaway. And if you're here on the replay, let me know the same information as well. Give me some love, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's start. Down to the questions. Now, some of these questions I've already gone over in my head and uh, I'm going to give the best answers, but it's going to be vague sometimes because I can't just throw a cascading effect over this whole topic of hormones. So Aubrey asks, how to stabilize them? She's young in her mid-20s and dealing with some PCOS on top of endometriosis. So let's get into those two components first. PCOS is a two-factor component. First, you have to balance the blood sugar, which is why they give metformin. Second, you got to take the high testosterone and lower it. Now, my route of doing that is Sinulin, the natural blood sugar stabilizer without all the side effects, and Femicrin. It has ingredients needed to convert testosterone into estrogen. You can find those inside the PCOS 90-day kit on my website at drkyleyburton.com. That's PCOS. Endometriosis can get a little bit more complicated, but to keep it simple, we're going to go with the high estrogen. High estrogen causes heavy, painful periods. When those are a problem, we got to look into the liver first. Estrogen has to enter the liver hangs out there for a little while, it might get broken down. But if the liver is too busy, it's not going to get broken down. So it will hang out there for a little while and go back into the bloodstream, making those estrogen levels continue to climb higher and higher and higher, making those periods even more and more painful. What are the answers? The answers are birth control or hysterectomy. And if you're 26 years old and you want to get a hysterectomy, if you want to have kids, that's not an option. Birth control, if it has estrogen in it, it's going to make things worse. Most of the time, people bleed nonstop with that birth control. So how do we fix them? We take care of the liver. So there's really no one-way cascade to fix hormones unless you were to tackle blood sugar imbalances, which is always an underlying cause of hormone chaos, and two, helping the liver. Not just a detox, but doing it right. Nicole says, why do our periods get so irregular? Like I miss some and then I bleed for weeks at a time. 
This makes no sense to me, and it also makes me a nutcase. Nicole, you're definitely not alone. Usually, irregular periods are more on the PCOS side. What causes our bodies to actually produce the menstruating cycle, that time of the month when we call it our period, is the estrogen levels. Depending on how high your estrogen is, depends on how heavy your period is. So if we were to just navigate through a typical standard 28-day cycle, this is what it looks like. The first half of the cycle is when our estrogen climbs up. Our progesterone is low. Okay, so it's always a, a balance between the two of them. And then the 14-day mark hits, or if you're like me, it's the nine-day mark. So don't even just base it off of the 14 mark. We're all different. The second half of the cycle is when you should be testing your hormones if you are a menstruating woman. ZRT lab test is by far the best in my opinion. I don't like the Dutch test because it's a urine sample. I don't believe you can get accurate levels of your hormones in a urine sample. Think of all the processes that your body has to go through before it even gets to your urine. ZRT is the way to go. If you're going to go a standard lab test, then stick with your doc um, and make sure it's within the second half of your time of your cycle. But if you don't know when that is, that can be complicated. So just make note of whatever day you think it was when you took the lab test and we can work with it, right? So there's a combination here when Nicole's saying that, why are my periods so irregular? Probably more on the PCOS side. And the first thing I would do would be to balance my blood sugar. Stabilize the blood sugar. Make sure it's even throughout the day so you're not getting lightheaded or dizzy. That would be when the dips of the blood sugar happen. And then when it goes on for bleeding for weeks at a time, God, estrogen. <laughs> but it can be so tricky. When it comes to hormones, and so many of us want to blame everything on our hormones, when in reality, there's usually underlying stuff going on, which is why I'm not a fan of hormone replacement therapy. I've seen so many people coming in or telling me, you know, they're on progesterone cream or they're on testosterone pellets. And yes, their progesterone is low. Yes, their testosterone is low, whatever the scenario may be. But they've missed a huge key factor. And when I dive inside the alternative labs, meaning the blood sugar or the regular blood work, and I look in the CBC and the metabolic panel, and I can find, you know, their adrenals are a shot. Their lipid panel is atrocious. Their cholesterol is high, and the doctor wants to get them on statins. When in reality, that's a thyroid problem, blood sugar problem, and an inflammation problem. Bad lipid panel, bad cholesterol, think thyroid, what did I just say? Thyroid, blood sugar, inflammation. There you go. So with any hormone chaos, start with the blood sugar. Senulin is by far the best. You're not going to have the side effects as metformin. Anna says, when I was young and I, I had high testosterone, more hair than I should have. Today, I have low estrogen and progesterone and high DHEA. What does this mean? Well, high testosterone is going to be on the side of PCOS, especially when there's the hair growth, you know, that facial hair, they can't lose weight, their periods are so irregular, they have no idea if it's coming on day 17 or day 59, whatever it is. So one, balance the blood sugar, lower the testosterone, senulin, femicrine. Now she's menopausal and she's low estrogen and low progesterone, which is probably typical because that, that testosterone was so dominant her whole life. 
meaning estrogen and progesterone were going to be low naturally. So then she heads into menopause. They're already low, which is why you should be doing, taking care of yourself before you get to menopause. So she probably floated along the lines of PCOS. And now that she's menopausal, her estrogen and her progesterone were already low. One of the first things I do, two steps in, in improving estrogen and testosterone and, and progesterone, if you're ever told that they're low, the first step is eat more healthy fats. If you need supplement form, CVO, Vista 1, Vista 2, and RPM. Those are the healthy fats that I use and I rotate and I cycle them. We always want a variety of healthy fat sources. Foods like coconut oil, avocado oil, avocados, all those healthy fat components, your body has to have them in order to produce our sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Unfortunately, it also is required to produce cortisol, our stress hormone. So if you're stressed for too long, too high for too long, it's going to literally steal from your production of progesterone, testosterone, and estrogen. Heal the adrenals, balance the blood sugar at the same time. That will automatically improve your other lab markers. Claudia says, what are some possible causes for low progesterone or low testosterone? And then specifically with her husband's been trying, you know, the DHEA and all those natural things. When that's not the issue and that's not helping, you've got to dive in deeper. Things like autoimmune are often found when you get inside the labs and you start reading them correctly. Why does low progesterone cause anxiety? I have been having really bad anxiety until recently I was put on progesterone. Now, a lot of times people get on progesterone for one anxiety and for two sleep. It helps them sleep as well. Now, I always want to say, okay, if your cortisol levels are so high, your progesterone is going to be low, you're going to be anxious because the cortisol is just always so high. Um, in fact, one of my, one of the ladies I know, her anxiety was so bad that she couldn't even go to the grocery store. She got an adrenal test done with a sal saliva test and found that her all four of her saliva markers were off the charts, like four times as high as they should be all day long. Well, no wonder why she's so stressed. And your progesterone gets converted straight into cortisol. So if your body's having to produce more cortisol, it's going to lower the progesterone. So instead of taking progesterone, you can actually treat your adrenals and your blood sugar. You have to do those hand in hand. Now, I'm not saying get off your progesterone now, but I am saying let's fix the underlying cause and then you can slowly get yourself off of progesterone if needed. But that's why pro low progesterone would help or would lead to the anxiety because it's really not progesterone. It's more of the cortisol aspect. Catherine asks, what is the ratio to estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in postmenopausal women? And this is where I have to answer vaguely. Depending on the lab, depends on the ranges, right? So if you're taking a ZRT lab test, a Dutch lab test, a, a blood panel, or something else, um, they're all going to be different depending on the lab. Now, when it comes to the ratio, it's going to vary, especially in postmenopausal women. And it really depends on what for you, what's heading, what was life like in your hormone status as you head into menopause. Now, if you were to say, okay, I'm 45, I'm going to start heading into menopause. Now's the time to start really taking care of yourself. So the hot flashes, the low libido, the vaginal dryness, the mood swings, the brain fog, all of that just isn't normal. You think about it as being normal with menopause. It doesn't have to be. It's common, but you got to do all the work to get yourself healthy and strong and stable heading into menopause. Jennifer asks, how do I know when to test hormones 
if I've had a hysterectomy, my ovaries were left, but I can't tell and when, if and when I still ovulate. Now with that one, I would just test my hormones whenever. It doesn't matter specifically because you're not cycling anymore. With a menstruating woman, then test the second half, but menopause and postmenopausal or even post-hysterectomy, it doesn't particularly matter when to test hormones. What would the ratio be if we were estrogen dominant or the symptoms? Estrogen dominance leads to heavy, painful periods like that endometriosis we talked about. Don't ever just take birth control or hysterectomy as a end-all be-all. Do the work, start with the liver, start with the detox systems, then jump into some candida and some autoimmune components that are often involved. If you've had a hysterectomy, will we need to be on hormone replacement? Should we also be on testosterone? Hormone replacement therapy, if you've taken out your ovaries and your uterus, yes, you're going to need at least progesterone and estrogen. Testosterone, as I talked to her earlier today on our live, on our Q&A inside the membership, um, I would recommend taking like a precursor to testosterone in a small dosage and working your way up from there with a DHEA. Amanda and Halida ask about Hashimoto's. I'm 46 years old with Hashimoto's estrogen dominant, normal progesterone, but very low testosterone. What causes this? Estrogen dominant, start with the liver, the detox, so that way your body can get rid of the estrogen, which is naturally going to boost up the testosterone levels, and then definitely focus on healthy fats and blood sugar stabilization, and then cortisol control to improve the progesterone. For Hashimoto's, here's the thing. I've had so many people say, well, I've talked to so many people, alternative care, Western medicine, all the above, and they will always use my Hashimoto's as an excuse. Because you have Hashimoto's, don't take that as an answer. It's not an excuse. Whatever, even if you have some terrible autoimmune disease, so what? Lyme disease, MS, Parkinson's, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, whatever. You know me, I don't care about the diagnosis, nor should you. The diagnosis just tells you what umbrella your symptoms fall under. And then it's a pill to, quote, manage them. And Hashimoto's is typically levothyroxine, maybe Synthroid, maybe a combination of T3, T4. Look into that, the truth about a thyroid medication podcast for all details about thyroid meds and Hashimoto's. But know that Hashimoto's is an autoimmune. You have to treat the immune system first then you can heal the thyroid. There's definitely something you can do. Three steps to stopping autoimmune disease. That's where you're going to find it out on that podcast episode. So don't just say, well, I have Hashimoto's. You can if you want, but you can also live a very energetic and thriving life with it. Katie asked for the estrogen and progesterone ratio. Again, that's going to determine upon the labs and it's going to determine upon what time of, what day of your cycle it is. Um, it's going to be different with day three and day seven versus day 18 and 21. We're cyclical women, we're cyclical creatures. Unfortunately, these labs are also very different. Okay, let me get into these other questions here. And then we will dive into those three components we talked about. When your cortisol is opposite, you have a hard time sleeping, hard time waking up, feeling rested. Typically, your cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone produced by the adrenal glands, those adrenal glands sit on top of your kidneys so yeah, they might even be causing low back pain and a few far various reasons. Um, but I also want to throw out there that postpartum depression can actually be adrenal fatigue as well. 
In fact, what I have learned recently, when I've made the connection with my own son, who's just turned four, he's a terrible sleeper, always has been his whole life. Falling asleep is difficult. Staying asleep is difficult. His 11-month-old baby sister sleeps way better than he does. And, and I made this correlation the other day that when I was pregnant with him, I was in medical school. It was the last nine months of medical school. It was absolute torture. I was so sick with the stress levels I was under, the lack of sleep heading into it. I mean, it was just, if I, if I knew what pregnancy took, I might not have done it then. Now, I'm very grateful for him and for everything that has happened and since. But in the third trimester of your pregnancy, mama can actually use baby's adrenal glands. Then labor happens. And that source of adrenal support is now gone. Baby's gone. That can lead to postpartum depression. So definitely, as you're heading into pregnancy, support the adrenals. During pregnancy, support the adrenals. After pregnancy, support the adrenals. GA is what I use and what I take almost on a regular basis. If I'm laying in bed at night, can't sleep, my mind is going a million miles an hour, but my body's exhausted, adrenal support's the thing to do. Now, insomnia specifically, adrenal support, always balance it with the blood sugar, so GA and sinulin. And then last but not least, add calm, which contains GABA. And the more I learn about vitamin D, the more powerful it is. In fact, vitamin D is required to produce our hormones in natural amounts. So one of the ways to even treat low progesterone, low testosterone, low estrogen would be taking vitamin D. There's an episode I just recorded on the superpowers of vitamin D. Check it out. So when the cortisol levels are the opposite, meaning your cortisol is low in the morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to have a really hard time getting out of bed. Now, that being said, I hate the mornings. I'm not a morning person. There's a reason why I don't start work until 10, 1030. I want to sleep till between eight and nine. And I earned it. I had to work, wake up before the butt crack of dawn for way too many years in school. And I swore when I was done, I was going to sleep in. Now, sleeping in is now determined on when my kids wake up, but that's fine. So just know that you might be a night person, a night owl, you might be a morning person. My husband's a morning person. I would much rather get my work done from nine to midnight. And he would much rather do it from five to eight. So your cortisol can lead, lead to no sleep, especially that ability to fall asleep and then wake up feeling rested. The optimal DHE for women during menopause, it's, that's a toss-up, depending on what lab you're going to take. Is there a natural way to balance estrogen after menopause? We're going to get to that how to improve your libido after menopause, and then the alternative for hormone replacement therapy with menopause. Vitamin D, how does low vitamin D play into hormones? Definitely check out that podcast because I dive into the superpowers of vitamin D, but having low levels is also going to produce low levels of hormones. The two of them go hand in hand. So there's the answers to the questions. Be sure you come join us at the Dr. Kylie Burton page and then Dr. Kylie's Dream Tribe right there on Facebook. I'll put the comments or I'll post the links to the comments below in the show notes. And as for now, let's dive into how your fat hormones keep you fat. Now, when we think about hormones, we automatically think estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. There's a lot more hormones than just those three. Those are our sex hormones. Cortisol is a hormone. Vitamin D is a hormone. But in this one, we're going to talk specifically about leptin and a hormone called ghrelin. Several years ago, a group of Spanish doctors assembled a group of 105 evenly weighted men and women in their 20s and 30s. 
They put them on an eight-week calorie-restricted diet. In general, the diet was successful. These people lost an average of 5% of their body weight. So if a small woman weighing 100 pounds would have lost 5 pounds. Four months later, the researchers rounded up these participants to see if their weight had stayed off. Most of the participants had regained their weight, leading to this so-called yo-yo dieting effect. They believe that it was mostly due to hormones, had nothing to do with what they ate. If I could shout anything from the rooftops, weight loss, weight, it's not all about diet and exercise. If it was, there wouldn't be 83 trillion responses when you typed in how to lose weight on Google. If your hormones aren't balanced, forget it. Weight loss isn't even happening, especially on the PCOS side. The Spanish researchers discovered that those who had gained their weight back had a higher level of a hormone called leptin and lower levels of a hormone called ghrelin. Leptin is made and stored in our fat cells, our adipose tissues. Adipose is another name for fat. Whenever you finish a meal, leptin is released from your fat stores and and enters your bloodstream eventually making its way to your brain to deliver a message that tells you you're full. When you have a certain amount of food inside your body, that food gets converted into energy. When leptin levels raise, your appetite trails off and you feel full. Your metabolic rate also increases. Your brain thinks you have enough food and fat to go about your normal uh, business, like your your heart beating and your lungs breathing and your cells just working away on the on the food. So it returns the leptin levels in your side of your blood back to normal. Food then loses its appeal and it doesn't taste as good as you have been told. The leptin signaling to your brain that you're full and your tummy's happy. This process sets your body's ability, your metabolism to normal, allowing you to eat normal amounts of food clearing the path for the body to undergo complex and energy-hungry processes such as puberty and pregnancy, which they go up during those times is what it's saying. So when your levels of leptin fall below a certain amount, your brain thinks you are starving and launches a number of initiatives to bring about a return to energy, bring about food inside your body so you can burn it. When we diet, we are often in a leptin-deficient state. So when your leptin is low, your brain does not get signals telling you that you're full. It's going to get signals telling you that you're hungry. Have you ever noticed that when you go on a diet, like you crave all these things? Because your brain is like, I can't have it, so now I want it. Leptin can be to blame. Leptin also regulates the rate at which fat is broken down. As leptin levels rise, your metabolic rate increases. When you diet and your leptin levels fall, so does the metabolic rate. Eating more can actually improve your leptin levels, which will improve your metabolic rate, which will improve the rate fat gets broken down. And yet we're always told to eat less. Eat less, eat less, eat less, exercise more. Leptin is not going to allow you to do that successfully. Now, leptin is one key piece of the puzzle. The opposite component is a hormone called ghrelin. Ghrelin is produced in the cell lining of the stomach. 
levels of this hormone increase before meals and decrease after meals. So ghrelin's gonna tell you that you're hungry. Leptin's gonna tell your brain that you're full. So after you eat, leptin will be high and ghrelin will be low. Before you eat, ghrelin will be high. When you're done eating, ghrelin will be low. It's the, it's the teeter-totter effect there. Ghrelin stimulates the release of a growth hormone by telling the pituitary to do so. The pituitary is the same gland that releases the hormone TSH that talks to your thyroid. Dun, dun, dun. TSH is on the thyroid hormone. It is the pituitary hormone that talks to your TSH. T4 is what your thyroid hormone produces, your thyroid produces. Anyways, back to ghrelin. All right. So for over 25 years now, ghrelin was discovered in the 1990s. It was back then not clearly understood. However, what we know now is that ghrelin plays a major part in growth regulation by stimulating the feeding and the growth hormone release. The precise nature of the role is still, you know, up in the air. Now, researchers, of course, used rats and mice to determine the effects of ghrelin and, and leptin on the body's ability to produce energy and, of course, increase the metabolism and the ability to burn fat. So when we talk about if leptin is going to help our body burn fat, and if we've tried every diet under the sun, maybe dieting isn't what we should be doing. Maybe we should actually be eating more, not less. Let's talk about this leptin resistance. It could be a possible link of overweight and inability to lose weight. Those in the Spanish study who were overweight regained their weight loss after a problem that was discovered with this leptin or there was less leptin resistance. It's like insulin resistance with type 2 diabetes. The pancreas produces large amounts of insulin. The body can no longer deal with it properly. Leptin is the same thing. The body produces large amounts of leptin and the brain doesn't recognize it anymore. So if your body's producing leptin and your brain's not getting the signal that says, hey, you're full, stop eating, that could be a leptin resistance leading to overweight, and it's a real it's a real thing. In fact, some of the healthiest people I know are, quote, overweight. If weight was the actual deeming effect or standard of health, then maybe we should pursue weight loss. I'll never pursue weight loss as a marketing factor because weight is so variable. The actual ability to lose weight is so variable. It's different than everybody and it's not just a physical effect. All right, so we have leptin resistance. That can be a real thing when it comes to weight loss. I want to get into this ghrelin. So low levels of ghrelin. What happens with this? As with leptin, levels of ghrelin are abnormal also in the obese or overweight people. One study found that ghrelin levels were chronically low in obesity, which helps to downregulate the obesity. So basically what the, what the study said is that those who are on the obesity level can actually have lower levels of ghrelin, higher levels of leptin, but the body's and the brain's just not recognizing, not pulling it through. So when it comes to hormones, we're, there's a lot more hormones than just our sex hormones that play a role in our body, right? When leptin was discovered in 1994, the medical industry and academic centers were convinced that they had found a solution to obesity. Simply administer extra leptin to the obese. 
However, their hopes were soon dashed, as it was discovered that the overweight tend to suffer from leptin resistance. Those who took the hormone lost weight only temporarily and soon yo-yoed back to their normal state of overweight, as the brain became accustomed to the extra levels of hormone and ignored it. Okay, so that is the story of leptin and ghrelin. Now, here's another fact about burning fat in your sleep. As a society, we're not only fatter than ever, the incidence of obesity has doubled in the U.S. from 2000, from 1960 to 2002, and we're now in 2021. However, this extreme health issues are called orthorexia. Check out that episode. I think it's called um, Behind the Numbers, I Can't Lose Weight. We get into orthorexia and have an honest discussion about food. So now we've got to have the balance between leptin and ghrelin. And to burn fat in your sleep, researchers concluded that short sleep durations resulted in an increased risk of an individual being overweight because lower leptin levels were predicted rather than just fat mass alone. So there may be even an optimal number of sleeping hours at which a body weight is regulated and maintained. Ways to power up our fat burners. Although leptin supplements have been shown to not work, you can regulate your fat-burning hormones by following these lifestyle choices. Eat a highly varied diet of colorful fruits and vegetables and herbs. Strive to eat nine or 10 fruits and vegetables per day. Vegetable choices that help fat regulators can include broccoli, cabbage, carrots, leeks, onions, spring onions, garlic, asparagus, bell peppers, arugula, romaine lettuce, spinach, and tomatoes. But best fruits for fat-burning hormones include bananas, apples, blueberries, cherries, oranges, grapefruit, and pomegranates. Some of the best herbs for fat-burning include ginger, ginseng, cinnamon, bilberry, chamomile, chaseberry, which is a very popular menopause boosting the the estrogen, chaseberry is, green tea, peppermint oil, turmeric, dandelion, aloe vera, and echinacea, and a whole sorts of other stuff. So there you have it. There's the story of leptin and ghrelin, fat hormones that keep you fat. Now, when it comes to hormone replacement therapy and taking things like estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, those are a real thing. If you have a hysterectomy where that took out your ovaries, I would probably recommend that you do that. However, a lot of times hormone replacement therapy can go wrong can go bad and shouldn't be used in the first place. In 90% of cases, when I see people on hormones, whether it be a cream, a pellet, a pill, whatever the case be, I can usually find something hidden that's causing the hormones to be low to begin with. And that is ultimately the result of the underlying problem. The underlying problem can be determined inside regular blood work. As you now know, if you've heard me many times before say the CBC is probably the most important lab you could be getting as long as it's a CBC with differential. You got to have the right person reading it though. Okay, so you're taking a look at bioidentical hormones, hormone replacement therapy, whatever you want to call it, and it can be either one, a miracle, or two, a nightmare. The problem is, is that most of the compounding Hormone replacement therapy is not individualized. The testing is poor. The dosages are astronomically crazy. And three, we're missing all these underlying components to the story. Okay. 
So don't just be jumping to hormone replacement therapy. It can, can be helpful, but there's usually an underlying problem. I'll give you an example here. I had a lady who was currently working on her hormones. Chronic fatigue was the name of her game. Brain fog was a real thing. She was trying to navigate teacherhood, dealing with all of this. So she'd been trying the keto diet, the hormone replacement therapy, and then I got her CBC. And I said, uh, you're fighting a virus. And until your body is done fighting this virus, nothing's going to work. Your chronic fatigue is going to last. In fact, your numbers are so high that I would be willing to bet money that if you were to go get an Epstein-Barr virus test, it would come back positive. So for kicks and giggles, she went and got an Epstein-Barr virus test. Guess who was right? Me. Her was positive. She also had another bacterial infection of a pneumonia strain. If your body's fighting infections, it's not going to thrive. You can take all the hormone replacement therapy in the world. It's not. I mean, it might feel better for the, a short term. I was on speaking to another mom who was on um, very high doses of testosterone because, of course, her testosterone was low, which is another issue when it comes to testing hormones. If you're going to test your hormones, your hormones are a cycle. It is a system. Get all of the pieces to the system. You just testing low estrogen and saying, saying that you have low E, so you're going to go get estrogen, fine. You just saying that you have low testosterone, but you don't get any of the other hormones, you don't, you're missing puzzle pieces. You can't determine what's going on in a system with only one puzzle piece. You can sure enough get easily, easily get a testosterone pellet. They'll, they'll be easily handed out, readily available. So make sure testing is done accurately and sufficiently. So if I were you, I would get DHEA, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, a saliva cortisol sample, because the cortisol is best determined with a saliva sample four times during the day. I would get all of the thyroid because your thyroid is just one piece of the endocrine system. You want to get your blood sugar, your insulin, your A1C, and a lipid panel. Because if you don't have enough healthy fats, you're not going to have a product to make anything downstream. So be sure you're testing it in a very good way. Now, when it comes to hormone replacement therapy, there are alternatives. But the way I like to explain it is if you're going to use it, try to use it in the in as close of a way as you can get to where your body's naturally producing it. Same thing with birth control. So you can take the pill that has to go through your GI tract and the more processes that your body has to deal with the hormones before it even gets to your endocrine system, your ovaries, your uterus, your reproductive system, I should say. So your dosage has to be so high that by the time it's broken down in the GI tract and gets to your reproductive organs, there's some still left. So when you're determining what type of birth control or if you should do hormone replacement therapy, this is the way I look at it. One, I want to get pregnant. I want to determine when that is. So birth control is not a bad thing. Birth control is a bad thing if you're using it as a band-aid to cover up hormone chaos. Now, growing up, I was always terrified of birth control. In my eyes, I saw women who were going on birth control and then getting off and couldn't get pregnant. So to me, the blame was on birth control. That's incorrect. Birth control is to blame. I shouldn't say birth control. Birth control is usually never to blame unless you're getting like an injection or a shot that can never be removed. That has been an instigator of infertility. 
It's really hard to reverse it because it's there and it always will be. But if you're looking at birth control, never, ever, ever use it as a cover-up for hormone chaos. PCOS, to regulate your birth, regulate your cycles, as soon as you go off of it, you're going to revert back to that hormone chaos because nothing was done to fix it. You just tuck a Band-Aid over it to cover it up while you were on your birth control. I like the NuvaRing because, or whatever the heck they call it nowadays, because it goes in the vaginal tract and... It's right there producing hormones, right where my organs are producing hormones. So it doesn't have to go anywhere else. Same thing with hormone replacement therapy. If you're going to use it, try using like a cream where you can use it as close to the where those reproductive organs are as possible. So your body doesn't have to deal with extra. That way you don't have to get excessive amounts of levels of it. So be very careful about what you're using birth control for. Be very careful about what you're using bioidentical hormone replacement for. There are some alternatives. These include exercise, a clean, unprocessed diet, adequate sunshine, vitamin D, ladies and gentlemen, it's got superpowers, adequate sleep, meditation to relieve stress, magnesium and vitamin D to promote bone health, addressing underlying issues. Often a woman's hormones are blamed for symptoms like low libido and mood swings. When there are many possible causes from unresolved issues, one, in a relationship, two, emotional unhealed trauma, or three, physical exhaustion and other forms like an infection and autoimmune. There's a hormone replacement therapy chit-chat for you. Use it as needed. Don't use it as a band-aid to just say, oh, my testosterone is good now. Figure out why. Get the right help. Okay. How to improve your libido after menopause. Up to three quarters of postmenopausal women say that their sex drive has reduced since going through the change. It's not surprising when 70% report suffering from vaginal dryness that significantly impacts their ability to be sexually active. What can we do to ease vaginal dryness? See buckthorn oil from a, from a berry bush that's native to Asia and Europe, can help treat vaginal dryness. It's a rich source of omega-7 fatty acids, which have been shown to help maintain the health and integrity of the mucous membranes in the vagina. It also contains vitamin C, which, which helps to maintain collagen, the protein that gives its skin elasticity. So not only will this help with vaginal dryness, it may also help with incontinence as your, your urinary tract retains elasticity. In a very high quality study carried out in Finland, nearly 100 postmenopausal women with vaginal dryness, itching or burning, consumed three grams of sea buckthorn oil or a placebo oil daily. After three months, those taking the sea buckthorn oil had a better rate of improvement in the health of their vaginal tissues. The researchers concluded that sea buckthorn oil had beneficial effects on vaginal atrophy, the thinning, drying, and inflammation of the vaginal walls, often among these postmenopausal women. Suggested daily doses. Two capsules of Pharma Nord's Omega-7 sea buckthorn oil capsules in the morning and two in the evening. I've never actually heard of that one. Peraria mirafica. <laughs> Say that five times fast. I have no idea if I pronounced it right, but I'm going to give it a try. This herb has been used for many years in Thailand for medicinal purposes. It has been shown to help the, with the changes in, that occur in the vaginal tissues at the time of menopause. In a study of 82 postmenopausal women suffering with vaginal atrophy, 
Peraria Mirafica vaginal gel was found to significantly reduce symptoms after three months, and other studies showed it to be effective in reducing symptoms over six months. Aloe vera gel, this is a great natural remedy for feminine dryness. It can be directly applied to the area to hydrate it or taken internally to help from the inside out. We actually have aloe vera gel from Systemic Formulas. I used it on a sunburn the other day, worked wonders, put it in the fridge. It's just oil, it'll be so simple to take. You can do it, you can do it internally, rub it on the inside of the vaginal tract. You can do it through the GI tract too, both work. Vitamin E oil, applying vitamin E oil to the vagina on the regular basis can relieve some of the dryness that you are experiencing. Um, you can buy vitamin E capsules and break them open with a needle to obtain the oil. Mixing the oil with black cohosh cream can also help. One of the recipes that is recommended is six capsules of vitamin E oil mixed with about five teaspoons of black cohosh cream. Black cohosh is a popular herb for increasing estrogen production, applying it to the inside and outside of the vagina a couple times a day. Yes, lubricants and gels can help. Witch hazel is another one. Laser therapy is another one. What about the libido? Maca, M-A-C-A. Lady Prelox, St. John's Wort. St. John's Wort is another popular one in the hormone world. If you suffer from vaginal dryness, make sure you drink enough water, about eight to 10 glasses a day. If you are very dehydrated, lubrication is going to become a problem for your body. Consider avoiding alcohol and caffeinated drinks as they may further dehydration. What causes vaginal dryness? The presence of estrogen in our fertile years ensures that there are plenty of new cells producing lubrication and maintaining the elasticity of the tissues lining the vagina. However, when our estrogen levels fall at midlife, the production line of the cell factory also diminishes. Dryness can cause pain as the thinning brittle tissues can tear easily. There are also other contributors that lead to vaginal dryness, antidepressants, condoms, tampons, and prescriptions and over-the-counter drugs like antibiotics, antihistamines, and decongestants, if used often or at high doses, can produce vaginal dryness, chemotherapy, and radiation, excessive weight gain, other hormone disturbances like thyroid problems, pain, hormonal changes at the time of menopause, long-term illness and lack of energy, stress, worry, and depression can also take their toll. So there's your couple ideas on how to improve libido after menopause, specifically with vaginal dryness. It's a real thing. All right, ladies, that's all things hormones. Be sure to share this with your friends. I hope you learned a whole bunch. Let me know if you're joining us on the Facebook Live, what your key takeaway was and what you'd love to learn more about. And then last but not least, I want you to actually sit down and to think about a couple questions here. From listening to the podcast, tuning in onto the Facebook page over the last course of the podcast has been around for about eight, nine months now. We're 55-ish episodes deep. So based off of what you've learned from either Facebook or the podcast, identify three wins you've already had. Grab your phone or the note section or a notepad and notify, note them down. Identify your wins that you've already had.
six months from now, we're all together. What are we celebrating for you? What are you telling us has changed about your health in the last six months? Maybe it's improvement in relationships because your brain fog's gone, your mood swings have chilled out, your energy's back. What would this summer be like for you if you had more energy, not just believing your hormones? In six months, what are you celebrating? When would you stop yourself from these wins? What can you commit to right now to keep your momentum and to project it even farther along? The time is now. Let's start changing your story. Let's start healing beyond the diagnosis. Come join us inside the Healing Beyond the Diagnosis tribe, the HBD tribe. It's always open, always there for you. Why? Because when you're ready, so am I. If you're ready, come jump inside. All the links will be in the show notes. Come jump inside the VIP membership or jump inside the tier one where you get access to all of the programs, all of the workshops, all of the mini courses, everything that you need to actually get real answers from your labs that you already have. To work with me one-on-one, come join the VIP membership. Let's start changing your story and start healing beyond the diagnosis. I will see you soon.